It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Game Podcast. I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and this week I'm joined by Patty Barkley, Tom Dar, and Stuart Robson. Guess what? Nobody down a crummy phone line. They're all right here in the studio. We'll be looking at Arsenal as Bolton denied the Gunners a comeback with a late and emotional winner from Tamar Cohen, which effectively ends the title challenge. And also we'll be looking at leaders Manchester United as another Lake Chicharito goal seals three more valuable points. We'll have our usual favorites like quick hits. And in our debate, we're discussing the relationship between the media, the players, the fans, and increasingly, Justice Edie. So please stick with us for the next 35 minutes or so. We start up north where Bolton uh, defeat Arsenal 2-1. I think... Just get this out of the way. Um, title challenge over. Anybody disagree? Nope. 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 All righty. Sorry, Gooners. Um, it, it was one of those games where I don't think Arsenal were that poor. I, I, Ollie K wrote something um, that, though, that said this defeat conformed to the stereotype of Arsenal this season. You know, in other words, a team that has the bulk of the possession, the bulk of the chances but they don't actually win. Um, Stuart, did, did Arsenal deserve uh, to win the game? No, they didn't because they conceded two set plays. They've conceded set plays uh, a lot of times over the last three or four seasons. Uh, they didn't take their chances and they made defensive errors. And there's two sides to, to a football game. You have to be good in an attacking sense. You also have to be a good defensive side as well. And at the moment, Arsenal never, or the last six, seven, eight weeks, haven't got the balance right between defensive play and attacking play. When they've defended well, they haven't attacked well enough. They haven't played at a high enough tempo. When they've attacked well, which they did against Bolton, they had a lot of possession, they, they created chances, uh, Van Persie was excellent uh, Fabregas picked one or two passes Wilshire was brilliant in the first half but they didn't defend well enough and Sturridge kept on turning with the ball and going past people Kevin Davis won balls in the air and they didn't defend set plays you don't deserve to win anything if you don't work hard enough at your set plays and your defensive game plan uh, Tom, uh, as simple as that you were there um, do yeah. you agree with Everything Stuart says? Yes, Stuart's completely right. Uh, but on the set play thing, I mean, just take that, Tom. Uh, on, on, on the first goal, Kale's head, header, I was wondering if Nasri's standing there just inside the post. You know, it's a strong header, but Nasri's a professional footballer. Why can't he just clear it away? Well, he did uh, He did get a decent uh, contact with it, but uh, unfortunately for him, Sturridge was there to knock it in. The bigger problem was two seconds, one second earlier when... 
Cahill rises to head the corner and it's Clichy who's short who's challenging him rather than one of the taller centre-backs so Cahill is always going to be well, Clichy in the air. Song was marking Cahill further back Cahill makes his run Song wasn't aware of it Song gets caught behind two or three Arsenal players and Clichy's in the in the, in a zone a near, what they call a, a sort of a, 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 a near post zone and he's never going to beat Cahill in the air so Song was the player at fault to start with but he didn't track the runner and didn't get in a good starting position of Cahill Yeah The only point about this match that I really think shouldn't be lost is, is what Bolton Wanderers did I mean let's not forget the last time we saw them was getting absolutely taken apart in the FA Cup semi-final and you sort of wondered then is, has this sort of one of the teams of the season really and one of the managers of the season in Owen Coyle are they going to go on their holidays now and <clears throat> basically feel sorry for themselves a bit um, and fall into you know the middle of the table the answer was no and I think but that, that was a, a, a very very significant result and very much in keeping uh, with this season in which the sort of defeatism that infected that was threatening to infect the league has been banished and I think for that reason it's been a jolly good season I'm sort of in two minds about it because you want to get credit for bouncing back but by the same token Coyle got everything, but I mean everything wrong. We talked about before against Stoke. Stoke absolutely wiped the floor yeah. with him. Mm-hmm. He got his tactics wrong. Obviously, uh, you know he, he had some personnel missing, but you know he could have lost that game ten nil. Mm-hmm. Um, do you learn from it? Do you sometimes learn more from from abject failure than from yeah, success? Well, well sometimes you, you pick the side which you think is right. It doesn't go right for you. Again, against uh, Arsenal, yes, they played Elmander in midfield. When I when I saw the lineup with Elmander and Moamba in midfield against Arsenal's three, I thought Arsenal would murder them in that area, and they did to a certain degree. But he got other players to work hard. He got Kevin Davis to come back to almost be a third midfield player when Arsenal had the ball. Mm. And the difference between the two teams, the, the the Bolton side that played against Stoke and the Bolton side that played yesterday they had a cut and thrust up front with Sturridge who was absolutely outstanding right. for a lot of the game we, we mentioned that about Sturridge um, Bolton of course won a penalty which, which Kevin Davis missed but it seemed pretty clear to me Giroud on Sturridge looked like a dive um, does this mean that well A does anybody disagree and B does this mean we can finally put this whole thing to rest about foreign players young English players diving and you know what's tolerated what's not tolerated Oh, I mean, they, you, you, you were there, Tom. Like, did you see the Bolton fans rise up and say, no, Sturridge, in the Corinthian spirit that drives us <laughs> Lancastrians, you know, we demand that you not take the penalty. Was, was that why Kevin Davis missed it? Because he was ashamed by Sturridge's diving under Giroud's challenge? And I use that word very loosely. Uh, I suspect probably not. Bolton fans are certainly rising and they were kind of cheering happily and ecstatically. And... Uh, it was uh, just one of these things where the slightest contact in the box is, is given as a penalty and the referees need to be a bit smarter and realise that uh, just because a defender has his hand on a forward, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's pulling him down. He's just getting in close proximity to him and Sturridge dived uh, really effectively and the referee was behind. So perhaps it looked worse than it was from that angle, but it was, uh, it was certainly uh, didn't do Sturridge a lot of credit, although equally Juro's defending was poor to get him in that position and the fact that Sturridge got behind him to give him the opportunity to do that. Did it look like a dive to you from in the press box in real time? Yes. 
Patty, it's interesting because we, we talk about the way Tom touched upon that yeah, the way Giroud defended, and, and in your column in the game today, yep. you kind of raise this issue. You call it sort of grappling, yes, um, and and the fact that you get, you know you, you underscore the point that that defenders so often use their hands against yep. against opposing yeah. forwards, hands and arms. You know, uh, often. Uh, in most tackles now, you just need to look in the newspapers. Uh, when you see a picture of a tackle, the the player almost invariably is holding the uh, the player who's being tackled. So that, uh, I mean, the, the classic case. I went back to look at the in, while writing this column. I went back to look at the Agbon Lahore incident uh, in the league, uh, the Carling Cup final last season, where um, Vidic once again, uh, as usual, in as, as happens in virtually every game, deserves to be sent off and isn't um, and uh, you, you, the, the photograph of that that I consulted showed that Vidic as well as bringing Agbon uh, Lahore down uh, was pulling his shirt at the same time and I think this is I cannot understand why referees allow players to manhandle uh, other players in, outside the box, all over the pitch. So much so now that I imagine, and Stuart will correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that now coaches teach players uh, how to use their upper body, their arms and their uh, and their hands in, uh, in defending. And I find it absolutely ugly and indefensible. Moving on to Old Trafford, uh, Manchester United and Everton. This was a game where... Um you could say United took one huge step closer uh, to winning it. And, and, and it's interesting. What surprised me a little bit was they played, I thought, uh, quite an understrength um, team, United. Did. I mean, we saw Darren Gibson, yeah. you know, Johnny Evans, who has had a poor season this year, mm-hmm. you know, Everett on the bench. And I got myself thinking, like, were they resting players uh, ahead of, with all due respect, Schalke? And also, did, or did they know that Everton were going to be you know, we're also going to be so under strength and missing so many players. Was that the logic and figure we don't need our big guns? Mm-hmm. Um, Patty, I want to start with you. Were, were you surprised when, when, when you saw the no, starting lineup? No, no, not at all. The the Schalke away match, uh, which will, I mean, could well define, uh, it could well be won in the uh, the away match, you know, if uh, Schalke are dreaming of 1-0. Uh, but if, if Manchester United must score out there, uh, to be out, you know, to be pretty sure of going through, and I think it's, it's a vital game. Everyone's saying it, it, it's going to be a walkover, and it should be. But Manchester United can't afford to think that way. They can, they could, however, have just about afforded to have dropped two points to Everton. Why? Uh, because given the way results results went, they've got Arsenal and 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 Chelsea next. Yeah, I mean. They lose those two games. I think, I think they thought that was the lesser risk. And also, what you have to bear in mind is that Sir Alex Ferguson has become the first manager. Uh, they, they always used to say of managers, the problem with this guy is he doesn't know his best team. Sir Alex Ferguson hasn't known his best team for five years. He's redefined, completely changed the nature of football management um, in, 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 the, in the age of rotation. And so it's very difficult to know. I, I think... 
the, the presence of Darren Gibson is always a sign. Um, but it's very difficult otherwise uh, to know what is you know what 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 he's doing. Basically, he has a team of 20, 22 players, and uh, that's the way he runs Manchester United. And it's it's incredibly successful. Uh, any other manager could try it, and it wouldn't work. Somehow, Ferguson is able to have a house style that survives wholesale changes, and and this is just yet another instance. Looking at that, that Everton lineup with um, you know with, with with Osman behind the striker and, and all those defensive players plus Bidilatinov in in midfield, um, I thought this is going to be a walkover even with the understrength United, but but Everton certainly hung in there and uh, uh, and even had a, quite a strong penalty claim in, in the second half uh, Rio Ferdinand on, on Anichibi Stuart how did you see it? Yes there was contact yes uh, uh, Anichibi went to ground very easily it could be given one way or the other and uh, when it's at Manchester United when it's at Old Trafford usually United get the benefit of the doubt did Everton play well? Yes they are they're, they're a team in form at the moment they've been playing well they had they packed their midfield they tried to get um, uh, Beckford going in behind which he did against uh, for Leeds against Manchester United and they caused one or two problems I thought they worked really hard at their game plan Everton. They, they stopped Manchester United playing in midfield. They, they cut out the balls into the wide areas where Nani and, and Valencia were playing. And Everton, I think when they play really well and they when they work hard, they are a good football side. Paddy, uh, on the issue of, mm. of Chicharito Hernandez, what yeah. I find fascinating is this is a guy who a little more than two years ago yeah. was ready to quit football altogether. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a Chivas, he was fourth fourth choice striker. Yes. He sort of spent the previous two years constantly on loan to the lower divisions, going back and forth. I think he felt some weight from the fact that his grandfather and his father, of course, both represented Mexico yes. in World Cups. And then he comes here and 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 I think pretty much you know, fits in fits in seamlessly. Yeah. You know, does the hard running, but he basically does what you know Michael Owen <laughs> used to do yes. a decade ago. Yeah. Um, plus more things that maybe Owen didn't do. Yes. Um, and you know, you look at the legacy of Mexican players coming to the Premier League, which yeah. there, <laughs> there isn't many. In fact, Mexican players in Europe, apart from Hugo Sanchez and Rafa Marquez. I, Surely he must be one of the signings of the season, if not the signing of the season. I think he would be the signing of the season ahead of uh, Raphael van der Vaart and, and so on. Um, I think he's been a wonderful signing. You, you, you sense very, you get very much a sense that he's a Manchester United player with all that entails um, in terms of work rate, modesty, uh, self-effacement and the winning mentality. It, 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 it truly has been an extraordinary first season. I watched the, um, the community... Shield, um, and I mean, you could just see that this was something special. Um, and uh, he seems that he seems a nice lad. He's got a great attitude to the game, and he's just going to get better and better and better and better. The header against Everton was. I mean, no, no, no towering centre forward in the history of, of the game has, has has put a header away better than that. I mean, it, 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 it's just everything about him. Do I see need to send the the ghost of Nat Lofthouse? He, well, Nat Lofthouse wouldn't have done any better than that, would he? <laughs> I mean, it was the way he smacked it down, uh, almost like putting a basketball away. I mean, it it, it really was 
great technique and and I just say I just think everything about him his movement his team play I mean he and Rooney can be one of the greatest forward partnerships in the world for five five more years uh, Stuart I, I want to get your input on this because obviously you've got you know you, you, you you've not just been a player um, and, and a player who you know got a lot of attention as a very uh, you know when you were very young but also also a coach and when I look at this, the fact that you know, less than two and a half years ago, he was ready to give up on football altogether. When you see this development, is I mean, in your experience, is this generally something that wasn't there before, and that he suddenly improved? Was it something that was there, but maybe wasn't perfectly teased out? I think probably teams weren't playing to his strength because when I watch him play, he can run in behind. He's got great pace, as Paddy said. He's good in the air, excellent in the air when balls come into the box. He, he sees danger. He sees the opportunity to get into the box. There's one area of his game that needs vast improvement, and that's with his back to goal. The ball goes up to him quite often. It bounces off him, and he doesn't control it properly. Or makes the wrong decision whether to turn or lay the ball back first time. When he was playing in Mexico, they probably played into feet all the time and he didn't show the same attributes as he's now showing for Manchester United, which is, is running behind. And Paddy's quite right. With Wayne Rooney playing as a much deeper centre forward and, and Chicharito playing as the as the main player who tries to get in behind, it's a great combination. But I think that's the reason why he didn't do quite so well in, in Mexico, because they weren't playing to his attributes. They were playing into his feet, which he's not quite so good at at the moment. Um... Rooney perhaps not you know, back to goal, maybe not his, his strength either. Um, could that be a problem in terms of them as a potential partnership? Will there always need to be sort of a, a third element to it, whether off the bench? or in, I mean, we know Sir Alex is going to ro- rotate, but... Well, I think what Wayne Rooney, I think he is quite good with his back to goal. Not in terms of he doesn't play in straight lines. He'll come off and get get himself turned on an angle. He'll let the ball run across his body, and then he's looking forward to play that next pass. And what Rooney, the best thing about Wayne Rooney, and I played with Charlie Nicholas, who everybody would talk when he came down from Scotland. He was a dribbler and a, and a great goal scorer. He lacked pace, mm. but his best attribute was actually his passing. When he played deeper, when he when he couldn't run past people, yeah. he played deeper and started hitting crossfield balls. He started poking balls between centre halves, and that's exactly what Wayne Rooney's doing at the moment. And Wayne Rooney's a far better player than Charlie Nicholas was. Yeah, Wayne Rooney. I love Wayne Rooney off the front. I mean, people said he can play as a centre forward, but I mean, you know that that really is not not the not the way he likes that wants to play. He wants that area off. That's why even playing in a three behind a centre forward suited him. Even if, even when he was on the left, suits him better um, than than playing as a, a number nine and so that's why you know for all the reasons I think this is this is why this is the most exciting combination and what's more it's so beautiful to watch unselfish football they're both unselfish footballers and uh, it's, it's you know everything that's right about football these two as a partnership epitomise in my opinion uh, Tom a, a final word here on this and, and you can talk about Wayne Rooney um, what it needs to happen between now and you know, let's say in the next 30 days, for Wayne Rooney to remember 2010-11 as a good year. Let's say scoring the winner in the Champions League final at Wembley. I think that would uh, crown a dramatic renaissance in the second half of the season. But pretty much from January, he's uh, he's turned his form around and the goals are now flowing as well. And he's finding a better balance between playing this almost attacking midfielder role, but also getting in the box to score uh, not approaching the frequency with, of last season but he is now finding a better balance not dropping quite so deep 
he is getting in dangerous areas as well as being a creator. Uh, and if he were to perform really well against uh, against Schalke and then in the final of the Champions League, I think uh, he could say that uh, the second half of his season will have made up in large part for the uh, the dismal first. And Paddy, actually, you get the yeah. last word on this yeah. because it's a fellow mm-hmm. member of the Scott fraternity. Yes. Um, if you're Davy Moyes, yeah, and you look at where you're likely to finish this season, yes, are you going to be happy, and are you going to maybe start really getting itchy feet once and for all, and I ask yourself, yes, I think it's time to move on. I think it's time for David Moyes to be doing the, the his job in the Champions League rather than um, hoping to get in the Europa League um, and, and, and wondering why the team don't start the season better it's a strange pattern that it's got into at Everton um, it's a bit reminiscent of Charlton Athletic under Kerbishley the, 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 the season always um, went in distinct uh, phases uh, almost as if they were dictated by the moon rather than the training schedules um, so I, I, I think he's, it's time to go um, and if he can get in, can't get into the Champions League in England England, then he should go to somewhere like Germany uh, if he can get a job there and, and play his trade in the Champions League. I think he's, he's such a good learner, Moyes, that uh, he would be an ideal immigrant, you know, and, uh, and, and could, you know, perhaps even have more success or have success in the, in the way that Steve McLaren did in, um, in Holland. If you're listening, Davey, remember to credit Paddy when you win the Greek League. All right. In our uh, uh, debate this week, we're kind of going across the board in sort of the relationship between the different different stakeholders, I guess, uh, uh, you talk about in the game, obviously, the, the players and managers, the, the fans, the media. Um, last week saw a situation where Cesc Fabregas gave an interview to um, uh, a Spanish magazine, Don Ballon. Mm. Um, I personally don't think that he said anything that... Wenger himself hasn't said, except possibly one thing, which is that there's a trade-off between, you know, developing and playing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Pretty football and success. Apart from that, every single thing Fabregas said is not just true, in my opinion, but it's stuff that Wenger has also said. Um, Now, the media, as often happens, took those quotes, ran them here. I think most reported honestly, but there was an issue with with the headlines. It was interpreted as, you know, Sask attacking Wenger, and that's what incensed Arsene Wenger afterwards. Now, 
What I want to throw out there, this issue of, of, of the headline, because Michael Owen touched upon it as well. Michael Owen speaking on Twitter, where he says most of the time it's not his quotes. You know, he's happy to speak to the media, but he gets wary because they get turned into big, sensationalized headlines, or yes. even in the broadsheets. It's not just a tabloid mm-hmm. issue. Um, I, Tom, in, in, in your experience, has that been... Is, is that the case? I mean, did you see like a big headline like, you know, and I'll, I don't mention him because he's a mate and he's no longer here, you know, DiCanio puts the boot into Harry Redknapp, yeah. and then you read the piece and it's nothing like that. Yeah, this happens all the time in So in it's e- the fault of those paper. nameless, faceless sub-editors, right? Oh, absolutely. It's never the fault of the writer. Exactly. Well, the, 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 truth, the truth is that a headline is meant to grab your attention and, and draw you in and be dramatic and and interesting and exciting and the people who write the headlines uh, in newspapers are not the same people who are writing the article who are meeting the player or the manager uh, there is a bit of a disconnect there uh, very often now you get you get clubs who want uh, want copy approval such as Arsenal who seek to control every part of the process and uh, you can make the argument that that is excessive paranoia and unreasonable or you can make the argument that they are just uh, protecting their players interest uh, because you do get situations where uh, sometimes players are misrepresented and it's not always in the article, it's in the headline. Do people always read the article or do they just uh, stop at the headline and draw their own conclusions from that? Paddy, on on the issue of of copy approval, this is one of the things that that upset Arsenal because according to them, they said that, you know, Don Ballon had agreed that they would then send Cesc quotes to Arsenal's press office who would then go over them and approve them and so on. Yes. I, I... feel very strongly about copy approval. I don't give copy approval to anybody. I'd no. rather not speak to somebody. Um, I may send the quotes to them yeah. just to see so that they know what's out there. Yeah. But I would never change a copy of somebody. You know, you, you either trust me, talk to me, or, or you don't. Yes. Um, does the media go too far with, with copy approval? I think it's a terribly difficult issue because um, I can see both sides of it. It's, the, it's, it's partly to do with the way newspapers are configured now. Um, a, a statement is described as news. Now, if um, Arsene Wenger were to punch Cesc Vagas, to me that's news. If Arsene Wenger uh, were to say, I think Cesc Vagas is a very good player, that to me isn't news. You know, just sort of opinion becomes news. And I think that it, it, in order to make it punchy and newsy, it has to be twisted. A lie has to be told. And uh, th- that for that reason... On balance, if I were a head of communications of Arsenal Football Club or indeed any other football club, I would ask for, uh, and I hate to say this, I really hate to say this because I'm, I'm with you emotionally all, all the way along the line in what you said before, but I would ask for copy, headline and presentational approval. Uh, on every single word that was issued from my if club. If I ever own a newspaper and you ever run a football club and you mm. come to me to say that, you know, yeah. you know what I'm going to do? Yeah, you've been work with me. I, I, I'm going to I'm going to run blank space where your results are. And if I ever run a picture of one of your players, I'm going to black out his face and you know, but, draw a funny mustache on there. I, and most of all, uh, just erase all the sponsors' names. You know, the one thing that, uh, uh, that uh, really annoys me about football clubs is the way that they do try and control everything that's written about the club well, and the, everything that's written about their players because what they're 
doing. They're overprotecting the players, and the players haven't got any idea how to talk to the media now. They're well, hopeless. It's, it, 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 it's funny. I mean, it's the worst both ways. I, I recently saw an interview Paul Scholes gave with MUTV, and it was interesting because you can tell, you know, for those who don't know, mm. Paul Scholes very, very rarely speaks to the media. And after that interview, I could see why. It, it was in between the first and second legs of, uh, um, of, of the Champions League when they'd beaten Chelsea. And he goes out and he says, oh, Chelsea were utter rubbish in the first leg. You know, we could have beaten them by three or four goals. And, you know, when we play Schalke in the next round, I think it's going to be very easy. We'll get through the final. I mean, it was all stuff like that, which was mm. wonderfully refreshing and honest. But and, and that's the flip side of it. You know, you could tell why this guy isn't let loose or probably doesn't want but, to but, speak to the media because he would get in trouble every single day. But um, or not get in trouble, but have his quotes sensationalized yeah. and so on. But I, I want to throw out a, a different model to any football club listening out there. I mean, I, I, I have a dream. I, I, I see a shining city on a hill where a football club tells its players, right, you talk to whoever you want, whenever you want. Um, if you say something that the club are not happy with, we will fine you because we have a right to do it because it's in your contract. Beyond that, no copy approval. Responsibility is all yours. And I think if you were to do that, then I think the players would learn pretty quickly who to talk to, who not to talk to, on what terms, and put the responsibility on the players. I've so, met Cesc Fabregas. I've spent time with him. He is more intelligent than 99.9% of people in the media, people at football clubs or mm-hmm. other footballers. Mm-hmm. He can handle the situation. Um, and, and I think, if, but the problem is when you start treating footballers like children, this is where you run into them. Give them responsibility. And what I don't understand is that all these press officers, they want to control everything the player says, but they never give any advice to the manager. I've seen some of Arsene Wenger's press conferences where all the things that have come from his mouth have inflamed the situation. Yes. He said all the wrong things. Yeah. Why doesn't the press officer there say these are going to be the questions that are going to be thrown in and give, them some, give him some advice? We newspaper folks used to say that, you know, when we complain to football clubs about you know not getting access to the manager or, or or to the players, we would talk about oh, but you know you're our conduit to speak to the fans and you're denying it to the fans. In an age of official club websites and official club television uh, stations, do the fans still really need us to get post-match quotes from? From players, is, 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 is there? I mean, when you go up to you know a mix zone to talk to a, to, to a player after a match, do you feel as if you're working for the fans? Do you feel as if you're working, you know, for yourself to help uncover the truth? Do, do you feel like you're doing it because it's what we do? I think newspapers uh, are still providing a valuable service because we are independent and we should be neutral and we should be uh, objective. If you just let the clubs become media organisations, which is what they're trying to do, to be honest, because... Mm They can manipulate the image to suit them. They can produce whitewashed, bland, corporate uh, impressions of players, and they can make money of it out of it by having their own TV stations and their own internet sites. So you you are getting an increasing situation where clubs are encroaching on the territory of newspapers, but still allowing newspapers access. So you have a real tension there, uh, but. Uh, you can still rely on the press despite its flaws. It, we may not be perfect, but we are going to give a more objective and reasoned 
analysis of a game by and large than you would get on a club website. But we can say just to pick up on Tom, you're talking about analysis there, and and I agree with that. And in fact, in the very early, early, early days of uh, sports writing, at least in America, um, the belief was that uh, if you covered a sport, you shouldn't have any contact with the manager or the players, um, you know, because it would somehow it would somehow influence you. So in terms of analysis, a bit like Stuart said earlier, you know, he can, you know, you you can sit there in the press box, watch the game, and analyze what happens. But I'm talking about the needing to speak to these people, you know, the the reporting side of it. Do you feel that it's, and especially the quote gathering side of it, because the problem is the people who are the better talkers are often the more anodyne ones. It's, it's difficult. The players can't win. If they say something boring, it will end up getting blown out of proportion because of the need to fill space and newspapers' desperate desire to maintain their circulations in a declining market. Uh, and p- newspapers are just shouting ever louder. If, but the trouble is, if the player says something genuinely interesting and worthwhile, then that gets blown out of proportion as well because everyone's so shocked and taken aback by an outbreak of honesty in a general sea of blandness. Mm that that gets exaggerated and you get players ending up being in trouble with the authorities and with the clubs so the players can't really win whatever they do yeah. and they've, we've had got Twitter now which is great uh, it's really refreshing to see players talking directly to, to the fans to the media uh, without a conduit without a medium which is great but then in the end up if, you, if they're too honest they end up getting fined by the FA or they end up getting uh, in the newspapers just the same yeah. uh, the same sensationalism so yeah. it is difficult for the players and we are in a celebrity culture now in sports journalism where as Paddy says uh, a quote by a famous person has bec- become news and has the, become uh, and, disproportionately and the problem, important the problem is when it's, when it's taken out of context the kind of journalism I like um, uh, and I've always liked reading and, and I've tried to practice um, it's very very difficult now is, is, is always contains the article would always contain an indiscretion but it would be if it came, arose naturally in the 17th paragraph, it would remain there. The difficulty now is that, uh, and, and, and when I say now, I mean for the last 15 years, has been that the, the, the nugget is always taken out of context. And they and say, put oh, at the top that's the got to go at the top. Um, and, of course, that ruins it because the, if, you, if you take something out of the context, you... You, dis- you inevitably distort it. And that's what journalism, I'm afraid, today is all about. Although I do take Tom's point about uh, w- why we are a necessary evil is because of the, um, is because of the independence. The funny thing is, you, you, all you need to do, if you doubt that, is watch MUTV. Yeah, but what I would say, which, Paddy, is, <laughs> which makes Pravda look like a, a, ger- a broad church. But my, my, <laughs> big, my big problem with, with, uh, uh, with all sorts of journalism, co-commentators, whatever it may be, punditry, mm is not all of it is unbiased. Yeah. Because reporters get in with certain people. Yeah. And I've they, made and, mistakes yeah, in and, and discussing and, and, managers and, and, who and, I like. And pundits, I know pundits that yeah. are friendly, so they will never criticise players yeah. that they're friendly with, mm. but they'll criticise his mate next door because they're never going to see him again. Yeah. And that's what's wrong. Biased opinion. Final point on this, and I, this is one of my favourite subjects, but uh, I... Well, uh, Tom, um, I'm guessing you're the youngest one here. Um, will newspapers be around for your children to read when they're in their 20s? Yes, but I think there'll be uh, their role will have changed and there'll be uh, more analysis and uh, intelligent comment than they are now. There'll be less 
breaking stories. Breaking stories would be the province of uh, instant uh, websites and uh, whatever whatever format we we read uh, by this time. Whereas. Uh, whether there'll still be a, vo- a place for intelligent voices, reasoned voices, and considered voices, uh, the real uh, elite journalists uh, will still have uh, will still have their place, uh, despite the increasing number of you know, uh, amateur or unpaid you know uh, journalists. So I think they will be, but they'll be vastly changed and vastly restricted. The future presented by Tom Dart. And now, because the Easter Bunny has come and gone, it's time for some quick hits. Fernando Torres finally scores for Chelsea in their 3-0 win over West Ham. Uh, Paddy, you knew this was going to happen at some point, right? Mm-hmm. And will this cue Chelsea's dramatic comeback to win the Premier League? Uh, not this Sorry, season. the Barclays Premier League. <laughs> it, uh, not this season, but maybe next. Um, I think that if they bite the bullet and let Drogba go uh, this summer while there's still some value... Uh, in him, I think they they might get the best part of ten million, um, which you know will help their uh, financial fair play uh, uh, computations. Uh, I think yes, I I think there are signs that Torres can uh, can be the centre forward of a very good championship challenging team next season. Well, possibly even with Ancelotti still around. Hope so. Liverpool pummel Birmingham 5-0 and Joe Cole gets on the score sheet. But there's plenty of rumours that he'll be on his way in the summer. Uh, Stuart, if you were Joe Cole's dad, or better yet, his agent, what sort of club would you steer him towards? Name names. This is fantasy role-play. He's got to play at a club where he's going to be a, a, get in the team every week. So it could be a championship club at the moment. But no, I would say a, a team maybe like Birmingham. If they stay up, a team like Bolton, uh, who I think uh, Owen Cole could probably get the best out of him. So they're the the sort of sides that I think that Joe Cole has to go. He can't play in the big top four clubs anymore because he's not quite consistent enough and he wouldn't get enough games. He needs to play week in, week out to get his career back on track. Joey Cole, are you listening? Tottenham are held by West Brom 2-2, but Terry Redknapp feels slighted, arguing that Spurs belong in the top four. Tom, is he right? And uh, will they be there at the end of the season? He is right. They're certainly worthy of the top four, but uh, I don't think they will quite make it. If you look at the weekend's fixtures, uh, Spurs away to Chelsea, uh, Manchester City at home to West Ham, uh, you've got to feel the gap is only going to increase. Uh, It is going to be a painful uh, thing for Spurs to take if they're not going back to the Europa League after doing so well in the Champions League. But uh, it's just going to be a real shame because they've proved they are good enough, but it's uh, not going to happen. And they have the manager of the year too, don't they? Some people's anyway. The old firm derby ends in a scoreless draw, uh, all but sealing the title for Celtic. But it also marked the end of a horrible week, which saw a package containing a bomb sent to Celtic boss Neil Lennon. Uh, Paddy, this is an age-old issue, uh, but was it ever this bad? And how is Scottish football going to get out of this? Uh, Scottish society, I would say. I mean, they, I, it, it was ever this bad. It used to be worse, believe it or not. Um, the sectarianism was more naked and the violence more prevalent. Uh, there were murders, plenty of them. Uh, that's not to make light of the bombs sent to Celtic boss Neil Lennon and others. And I think that the police and Scottish society, there are signs that Scottish society are going to rise up against this virulent minority of anti, uh, of Protestant fundamentalists, you might call them. And they've just have got to be driven out by the rest of society. And then things can actually get... And things, believe it or not, are better than they used to be. Maybe some hope ahead. Uh, Darren Bent scores again, as I read in the Times today. It's his seventh in 12. Uh, Stuart, with hindsight, can we definitely say he's been worth the transfer fee? 
Uh, yes, he has. I mean, Darren Bent, when he was at Ipswich as a young player, he had all the attributes to be a top-class player, and he was he was messed up by going to Charlton because Charlton played him as a lone striker, and they just wanted him to chase balls in the corner week in, week out, and he got absolutely shut. So the other parts of his game, his link-up play, his technical ability, uh, started to, to get worse. I think he's a good player. He'll score goals for Aston Villa, and if Aston Villa can get the best out of him in the other parts of the game, he can be a top player. Blackpool are held 1-1 by Newcastle, but Ian Holloway isn't happy with the officiating. Uh, he said that maybe Blackpool were just too small a club to get certain decisions. Tom, is he on to something? Roberto Martinez, uh, Wigan manager, said something similar a couple of weeks ago, but I'm getting a bit fed up of managers who imply this and pussyfoot around the issue. If you think a referee is biased, say the word bias. Say he's a cheat. What is Holloway really saying here? Is he effectively saying that the referee is cheating and wants Blackpool not to win the game? That seems to be the logical conclusion of these comments. But in the end, managers just say, oh, we don't get the decisions. It's uh, We're a small club. Say what you really mean. If you really think there's some bias, whether unconscious or conscious, then we have to hear that and it has to be investigated properly, not But if you, do, if you do that, Tom, then you'll just be fined. And then when you move to a big club, people will call you a hypocrite when you benefit from the decisions, right? <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. And there may be some mileage in the idea that uh, referees, like ordinary people, I suppose, would be unconsciously biased towards famous people and impressed by them. And if they know, if you know someone better, then then that will affect your behaviour towards them. But I don't think it's it's fair, and frankly, I don't see any evidence from that in, in the games that I've watched. Stirring words from Tom Dart, and a hard act for you to follow, Gab, because now we're going to turn the tables and you have to answer a question. The Champions League semi-finals are this week, and there's already talk about referee appointments. How can that be? Because there's already controversy, Paddy. Uh, UEFA took some unusual choices. Uh, for the Schalke Manchester United match, uh, they selected a guy named Carballo who's probably the third or fourth best Spanish referee and he's got very little experience only four Champions League games in his entire career thus far only one in the in the knockout round and I guarantee you that should United advance be, sorry should Schalke advance uh, due to some controversial decisions people will suggest oh look a Spanish referee to favor the Spanish clubs in the other half of the draw by sending the you know weaker Schalke team supposedly weaker into the final uh, by the same token the other one they, they also kind of uh, set themselves up again. Uh, Pedro Prensa, he's a Portuguese referee. Barcelona don't like that because Mourinho is Portuguese and Pepe and Cristiano Ronaldo. By the same token, there's some Real Madrid fans who don't like it because this Pedro Prensa, he sent off Mourinho twice back in 2003. So you really can't please everybody, but this time around, I did do think UEFA set themselves up for uh, um, you know, put it this way, they put themselves in a situation where with problems that could have been avoided. Yes, I'm really going to call this on my job. <laughs> It's a complex question. Patty chose a complex question this week. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Game. In the meantime, you can go to www.thetimes.co.uk. You'll find your news, your gossip, your analysis. Also, our web chats. Mine's on Mondays. All the cases on Wednesdays. And you can hear Patty on... Tuesdays. You can't really hear him. You can actually sort of web chat virtually from him. And this week, I think you're going to be in a remote location. Is that right, Patty? I'm going to be in Essen preparing uh, with Tom, I think, for the uh, uh, Schalke match. And I'll be in a state of extreme excitement. Fantastic. 
Trenton. Fantastic. Gelsenkirchen. There you go. It's Gelsenkirchen, Venice, Paris, the world's great cities. Also, don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, I'm there. Pandy's there. Tom's there. Uh, Stuart, you're not on Twitter yet, but hey, no, not yet. you'll catch a disease one day. Um, we're going to be back next Monday as United travel to the Emirates and Chelsea take on a team called Tottenham Hotspur at Stamford Bridge. Thank you so much for your time. Catch up with us next week. Till then, to the leap. Thank you.